It's episode 70 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is Sally Carson, head of product design for Duo Security, which is now part of Cisco. We're going to talk about the journey from small startup team to large enterprise organization and what to look out for along the way. Sally, thanks so much for being on the program. My pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Great. Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. It's been a wild ride. You've been there alongside me for a lot of it. Uh, that's true. And in fact, <laughs> I kind of wanted to start a little bit with a disclaimer, uh, even though I don't really think we need it. But um, yeah. you and I kind of first met through my firm, True Ventures, because we had uh-huh. invested in your company, Duo Security. Yeah. Uh, but since then, you've gone through an acquisition by uh, Cisco. And so there's really no financial connection any longer. So I'm not here to like promote one of my companies or anything like that. Yeah. So it could be totally objective. All right. Good. <laughs> Do our best anyway. Um, anyway, yeah. Wow. What, uh, what, a, what a ride that had been. Um, it sounds pretty yeah. amazing. I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, what I actually would like to talk a little bit about Duo Security. I think one of the things, it was one of those companies that I always use when people are like, hey, why, why, why is a designer joining venture capital? And, mm-hmm. and I always talked about Duo because I was like, what, what's the driest, most technical, kind of uh, most difficult thing you could imagine using? And people are like, I don't know, what do you mean? And I'd say like, uh, two-factor authentication. They'd be like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, we invested in this company. And one of the reasons we invested in them is because their pitch was, hey, the reason security sucks is because of user experience. And we can yep. improve the security of, of like – you know, all of our stuff we want to keep safe. If mm-hmm. not just by making security more more powerful or anything like that, but by like making it so people can actually use it. I was like, that's right. amazing. Like that's, you know, that's a kind of perspective that I think from a, from a, even a, an investing point of view that, that kind of frames up how I think about things a little bit. Like well, what, yeah. what I, if, I what if that. the innovation is the product is easier to use and people ha- have a delightful experience, you know, rather than some deep technology that's new or anything. Anyway, totally. um, yeah, and and we're trying to bring like a human-centered design approach to security. Um, it's such a cool space, you know. It's sort of like a a space that maybe designers are not as aware of as I'd like them to be. That's part of why I'm excited to talk to you today. Is just like get designers stoked about security because it's actually really fun and interesting and exciting. It's a really dynamic space, and there's a huge opportunity for design. See, I still even with the experience of of Duo find that like really you know a little bit like really <laughs> security is super exciting and and it is. so tell me like tell me about that like uh, yeah uh i know from my own experience even you know like all the accounts i've had all over the internet and mm-hmm. getting something like you know four or five years ago getting one password and having mm-hmm. it and then having the uh like touch id integration on my on my mac and my phone so, and like suddenly being like oh i feel a lot safer because it's just almost effortless now. Yeah. Well, first of all, good job. Good job <laughs> using password manager, <laughs> yeah, yeah. using biometrics for that second factor. Yeah. Um, I like to hear about that. But yeah, and when you're doing that, doesn't it kind of feel futuristic too? You're like, ooh, I'm going to use Touch ID just to make sure it's it's really me. Right, and like, now my phone looks at my face. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. You're logging in with your face. It's the future. It's super Star it's, Trek. Yeah, for sure. It's very Star Trek. But yeah, I think what you're getting at is like, there's this huge opportunity space um, where design and user research can have a huge impact. Um, and I think part of the reason is just, you know, design traditionally, it hasn't been a huge investment area for security. So I'm really proud of the investment that True's made in, in Duo and that they had that foresight that there's an opportunity here. So like 
part of the pitch um, that I give when I'm talking to, let's say, prospective designers and I'm trying to bring it to my team is the vast majority of breaches, which now breaches are, have impacted all of us in some way or another, all the way to, you know, the, the U.S. government. Um, the vast majority of breaches originate with a phishing attack, with email-based phishing attacks. Someone has phished you. They've gotten what we call your primary credentials. That's your username and password. And then there's a whole cascade of activity that they do from there. Um, multi-factor authentication, that's what Duo is known for. Our flagship pro- product is a two-factor authentic- authentication product that's very easy to use. That'll protect you if your username and password is stolen. But when you think about phishing, um, that's really a human behavior problem. So I think one of the things that we've traditionally thought about with regards to security is it's a technology problem. And it is like, it is complex, you know, innovative technology that's going into our, our products. But a lot of what we need to understand with regards to security is understanding that human behavior. Mm. You know, why, why is it people don't update their software when they know they should? Um, why do people use the same password for all these services? Um, why don't they use Touch ID or something similar to lock their phone? So kind of basic questions and people are rational actors for the most part and they want to be secure, but oftentimes the friction that's in place as a result of security products is enough of an impediment where they will choose convenience over security. So how do we lower the barrier for them, make it easier? Um, not blaming the victim is a big part of our ethos at Duo. It's like, actually, it's our job to make the products easier. So it's um, it's just so seamless that people do the right thing, make mm. the easy thing the right thing. That's interesting. Like, tell me what you mean, not blaming the victim. Like, oh, uh, the site would have been secure, but this person made a stupid mistake or with not following the the rules. Or is is that what you're sort of getting at? Yeah, there, there's a little bit of history in the security space in general about victim blaming, where it's like, oh, you know, goofy users making bad decisions, and mm. um you know, bringing a design design ethos into it, we generally don't blame our customers for bad design. You know, we take that ownership on ourselves and say, okay, like, let's be real about what we're observing with actual human behavior. Let's adapt our products based on what we know about how people actually behave instead of kind of hammering like, no, you got to use this product. And if you're not using it right, it's your fault. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. I remember there was an engineer uh, that I worked with long, long time ago, earlier in my career, who always used the acronym PEBCAC. You ever heard that? Which oh, is yeah, yeah. Prob- I've, I've been the yeah, problem I've been exists. <laughs> yeah, the problem exists between the keyboard and the chair, mm-hmm. which is like That's a right. user error, right? And I just first of all, I thought it was hilarious, and secondly, I'm like, oh, what a perfect epitomization of uh, yes. of just how so many technical people think about product. Absolutely. Yeah. So we we have a different approach and. It seeps through our culture. It seeps through just our values within Duo, how we want to work, how we want to collaborate. So trying to get away from that kind of snarky victim blaming and instead sort of something that's really people-centric. We talk about people-centric security a lot. Well, that's great. Um, so how, I would have, which came first, right? Like a big design and user research project or a kind of a company culture that wanted to use that as the way of moving forward. Probably a little bowl of both, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, this was what was awesome was when Doug Song, the then CEO of Duo, mm. um, now he continues to lead Duo within Cisco. Um, when he approached me to build out the product design competency at Duo, I was so excited about this opportunity because I already knew Doug. I was already aware of what Duo was up to. Um, 
in fact, I'd, I sat next to them at a co-working space when it was, when Duo was five people. So like I had kind of seen like the very earliest uh, days. What was exciting about that opportunity was Duo was already, despite the fact that they hadn't yet made that earnest investment in product design, they had made an investment in, um, they had hired a creative director who now runs our brand design group and the marketing side. Um, they had put a lot of thought into making it um, very humane. Mm. And really changing like the brand of the company. Like when you look at Duo, let's say on the RSA floor, RSA is sort of the preeminent security conference for the for the US. And a few years ago, when you look at the trade floor, and you'd see Duo amongst all these competitors, the the vibe, the like visual scan was very <laughs> like militaristic and red and black and chrome, um, very much fear-mongering. Uh, but Pete Baker, our creative director, brought in this really warm human approach. It feels the duo booth within RSA felt much more like going into an Apple store. It's clean. Mm. It's white. You know, there's the green for duo, maybe even some wood, you know, really warm kind of approach. And over the years, you'd see how that would uh, that actually started to influence our competitors. You'd see how the RSA trade floor uh, sort of changed as a result of duo there. But there, there was already that awareness and that investment there from the earliest days at Duo. So it was such a neat opportunity for me because I was coming into an organization that already had this human-centered mentality, and they were crazy customer-centric from the start. That was extraordinary to me, like our sales team, crazy customer-centric, product managers, engineers. Like our engineers are brilliant technical minds, but they're really focused on solving customer problems and to do it from a you know, empathetic point of view, again, not that victim blaming. So that was something so unique to see um, in general in tech, but particularly in security. I thought it was a really neat opportunity. So this is interesting to me. I have uh, been fascinated over the past few years with this notion of like being customer centered and how often that can have almost nothing to do with design and user experience, right? Yeah. Like, like, for example, that is probably the number one quality of Amazon, and um, and and to be fair, Amazon's design and user experience has dramatically improved over the last few years, um, mm-hmm. uh, especially in mobile and things like that. But I would not say that Amazon is like one of the best design, one of the best places in the world for a, a designer to work. Right. So right. so that 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 you know, I hear companies say all the time, "We're totally focused on the customer," uh, and I say, "Like, really? What kind of research are you do?" And they're like, "What now?" Right. You know, right. like so. Um, so how did that manifest itself like when you got there? And you're saying like the engineers are customer centered, but mm-hmm. but what does that really mean? Well, it was it was really neat. Like the engineers and the product managers at Duo, by the time I joined, they were already having pretty rich conversations with customers on a regular basis. So that was that was already a neat mm. thing to see where I didn't have to come into the organization and say, Hey folks, we we really should talk to customers, and it's it even say, sounds like bizarre to say that now, but I've definitely worked within organizations where that's kind of what I'm hammering on. We really oh, yeah. should put this in front of customers. We should really observe them. We should really talk to them. Um, so that muscle was already there, and part of my opportunity was let's bring in a more formal, mature user research practice that can augment what they're already doing, and bring in a little bit more structured methodology where there's different user research techniques that we could deploy depending on what phase of product development we're in. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't have to like swim upstream to convince them and talk to customers. They were already doing it. I could just add to their skill set. Now, how big was the company when you joined? I think it was around 100 or 120. Okay. It was that perfect Dunbar number where I knew everyone. I knew everybody's name and face. It's uh, like the last moment when you do. The right? last. <laughs> like yeah, the last moment. You cross 100 or you start to get to 120 <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I remember... 
my first yeah. my first big job at at Wired magazine. Uh, mm-hmm. I can remember the first time that somebody sent out that, bye, everybody, I'm leaving the company. It's been great yeah. working with you, and I'm going to go do this. Let's stay in touch. And I'm like, oh, I don't know who that person is. Like right. <laughs> The first person who left that I had never met. I'm like, oh, we are of a whole different scale now. I get that. So uh, It's kind yeah. of jarring. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and it is another example. I was meeting with one of our startups here in, in London this morning. Uh, and we were talking about the inflection points when everything breaks, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, which is continuous. I'm like, the thing to get good at is figuring is designing for when things break, not like, oh, we've reached a new plateau and here we are, but like, all right, what's the next one and start working on that. But, uh, so you're at a hundred, uh, what did the design competency look like at, at that point? Let's see. So we did have a, a team within marketing, the brand design team with that creative director. Um, and they were already kind of grooving like they had they had a pretty good capability on that side of the house but within product development uh i think this is pretty typical too there was one user experience designer and and that's what they were calling at the time ux designer Mm. and um kind of an early career designer um and so you know engineering had grown pretty rapidly in the year prior to me joining but they hadn't kept pace with their you know with growing ux um so that was one of the challenges, like, okay, we're, we're a little behind in terms of our ratio, in terms of scaling design in proportion with Eng. So there's a little bit of catching up to do. And as a result, you know, I'm sure you've seen this time and time again, like when you're under-resourced on design, it kind of forces design into pure execution and into pure surface. You don't yet have the headcount to get into shaping strategy and doing more generative research, let's say. Mm, yeah. So that was my, part of my, my challenge coming in. Yep, got got it. So so probably immediately just starting hiring and whatnot. I would imagine immediately. In fact, I was four months pregnant, and so I I had like an external deadline as well, where I was like, okay, let me let me get a little team together, make sure they're they're humming along and pretty self sufficient before I disappear for a few months. Um, so that just like added to the excitement too. Yeah, I would imagine. Uh, yeah. Talk about a hard deadline. (laughs) (laughs) She did come really late. That gave me a little more wiggle room. A little breathing room. Yeah. (laughs) Goodness. Um, so how did you, how did you start? How did you approach? Like what's the, was the intent when you were hired to say like, uh, we need you to build a team or did you have to go out and sort of advocate for resources? Yeah. Oh, good question. So, um, the explicit ask was, uh, we're hiring you to build out this competency from scratch, essentially, um, and to mature it and get it, you know, so it's on par with where we are in terms of engineering's maturation. But they hired me to build out what they were calling UX at the time. I, I recast it as product design, and we can come back to why I did that. Uh, what they didn't ask me for was user research, but that's what I immediately leapt into. I was like, okay, security is complicated. This has so much to do with human behavior and needs and motivations that we need to understand and just generally people's relationship to technology is kind of like the problem space. We need to understand this in a more broad way. So let's start investing in user research. And my second hire was a user researcher. Oh, that's fantastic. And was that, so was what I just heard you say was like, understand people's relationship with technology. So are you at that Mm -hmm. high level? It's not like we have a researcher, let's start uh, usability testing the, the stuff that's in the pipeline. Like, where did you yeah, yeah. You, you, I feel like we're we're like kind of uh, of the same ilk. So because we were initially understaffed with regards to product design, and because we were necessarily sort of like forced into that pure execu- execution surface level UI, um, 
and I was bringing in user research, was a comp- it was a competency that they didn't explicitly ask for. Part of my strategy was I'm going to immediately try to add value with user research by getting involved in usability testing immediately. And so me and uh, Mark Thompson Kohler, that first user research hire, who's still at Duo, is amazing. We worked together to put together a really rigorous usability testing program. So every two weeks, five participants, whatever's in flight, we're putting it in front of mm. real customers. Mark was just a machine, like constantly uh, recruiting, making sure we were queuing up participants, sometimes months in advance that were appropriate to the persona that we were designing for at that time. And I'm happy to dig into that even more, like how we made that just like really rapid, iterative, lightweight usability testing program. But part of that was to just show the value of user testing at large so that I could get more budget, make a case for expanding the user research competency and getting upstream towards that more generative research, you know, ethnography and things like that. Oh, see, I think that's so important when, when, when you don't turn research into an event, you turn it into a process. It's a thing we always yes. do. It's, it's slotting into our existing process, right? Just mm-hmm. like we do the continuous integration and the QA check and the, the, what, yep. whatever else is in there. By the way, there is this part. Where do I fit it in? Great. It goes right here. Now we're going to do that from now on. Totally. And it, it had to be collaborative. We had to do it right next to, you know, Inge and PM were in those usability sessions with us. How did you do that? Helping us analyze. Again, it helped that they were customer centric. And so the fact that we created a program where we were like, Hey, we're going to have five customers next week. Does anybody want to show them anything or, you know, test any prototypes? There was such an appetite there already, which was kind of extraordinary. I think for folks who hadn't had the opportunity to work with a a design team or user research team, we did have enough advocates within Inge where they could be champions on our behalf. But, you know, some really practical stuff like our, our testing lab, one side, one wall was all glass and we'd put up signs every time like usability testing in progress. Like you can... It's remote. We're doing all remote usability testing. So mm. the participants couldn't see us, um, but we could see what they were doing with their screen. And so people could quietly come into the lab, sit and observe for a while. You know, if if Doug, our CEO, walked by, I'd kind of say, hey, psst, come in here, mm. check this out and like mm. sit for a few minutes. So just making it visible in a central place in the office was a powerful way to uh you know, just showcase what we were up to. Oh, that feels like a hack. Like, that's great. You know totally. what I mean? Like, yeah, just get it. Like, what are they doing over there? Yeah. Wonderful. And it wonderful. was a hack because, you know, hyper growth, it's like, where do you put all the people? Like we had to, I just had to, I'm going to get in trouble, but I just had to book a conference room nine to five, Monday to Friday, every day for a year. That's how we got our lab. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Uh, I want to ask you more questions about that, but uh, we're going to sure. take a little break right now uh, and and talk about one of our friends of the program uh, who have been sponsoring us recently. And this could not be more appropriate. It's uh, ExpressVPN. Uh, do you use a VPN? I do. You do? Yeah. yeah. Good. I yeah. use different types of VPNs depending on if I'm mobile, if it's personal, if it's I work. would imagine you have to from, I mean, you work for Cisco after all. So you probably mm-hmm. were given one. Anyway, uh, they are sponsoring this episode of Presentable. And uh, you might think that like nobody really wants your online data, right? If you're like, oh, I don't, you know, do that much. Who's going to care? Who's going to snoop? But when you browse the web with anything that, uh, without anything to protect your privacy, you totally risk like, hackers, malicious people, bad actors that you were mentioning, Sally, uh, yeah. ad companies, even collecting all of your data and doing mm-hmm. who knows what with it. Um, and so if you're using a VPN, that just doesn't uh, happen to you. And that's why I recommend 
uh, ExpressVPN. It runs in the background of your computer uh, or it works on your phone. I use it on my iPad. I use it everywhere. It encrypts your data, hides your public IP address, and all you have to do is download the app and, and literally just like click the big connect button and you're protected. Um, they were rated number one VPF service by Tech Radar. Uh, they use this new cutting edge technology called Trusted Server to make sure there's no logs of what you do online. So they're not even keeping logs. Uh, and it costs less than $7 a month. It comes with a 30 day money back guarantee. You should just totally use it. Uh, this is the thing, uh, just like we were talking about, Sally, that, mm-hmm. um, like in the past, I've always known, I've known for years, I should be using a VPN all the time. I should, you know, every time I'm sitting down in a cafe or I'm at an airport or whatever. I should just be using yes. it. And I would get stuff like OpenVPN and, and things like uh-huh. that, which I have a tremendous amount of respect for. The, the work that the community has done to make stuff like that is great. But try to get that going on the iPhone with a little server that I had configured somewhere was uh-huh. way more work than I ever wanted to do. I just never did it. I just never, you know, I'd be like, oh, yeah, right. I got to click five different things. And sometimes yep. it connects and sometimes it doesn't. And I get error two F seven and like, what, you know? So, <laughs> uh, you know, I just, I, I got, uh, express VPN gave me an account and I literally like pushed a big red button and it turns green. And that's it. That's the entire user experience. So, perfect. um, yeah, so I like that. So, um, you should try it out today. Find out how you can get three months free uh, if you go to expressvpn.com slash presentable. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash presentable. Uh, if you buy a year in advance, they'll give you three months for free. It's a great it's a great package. Take back your online privacy, expressvpn.com. Thanks to them for their support of presentable and all of Relay FM. Thanks, ExpressVPN. I have a question about that. If I use it, can I kind of mask my geolocation and get Tour de France for free? <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm an expat. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. I live here in another country. Uh, I yeah. use it for that all the time. I don't think that's okay. even nefarious anymore. Like there are so okay. many American companies that I still do business with and have an accounts with, you know, because mm-hmm. I go back and forth all the time. And half of those companies are like, really? There's other places outside the United States, you know, like, right. <laughs> and, and it just doesn't work. And so then I like, I open VPN, I open ExpressVPN. I hit like, oh, I'm in New York, you know, and I uh-huh. like jump onto a New York server and all everything starts working again. So love it. Uh, yeah, like I don't know. A lot of the, it feels like we have a lot of contracts and things that are in place around licensing stuff that uh, yes. that pre-exist the internet and like yeah. borders don't make much sense anymore when it comes to that stuff. But they haven't caught up. So this is a way to. Ease to transition, let's say. Anyway. I yes, dig it. I, I do that all the time. Uh, yeah. So what were we talking about? We were talking about usability and hacks mm-hmm. and getting mm-hmm. it as a part of a process and getting the rest of the team involved. Yeah. Demonstrating that value of the investment user research by starting with this practical uh, usability testing program. I feel like that's really friendly for engineering um, just to say, hey, we're, we're about to ship this thing. Let's actually make sure we're good as far as just pure task success. I think- it's important to mention too, and I know that you know this better than anybody, Jeff, because you influenced me early in my career. The you know usability testing is it's not a complete vetting of the success of your design. Like it's more like, all right, we've decided to pursue this particular solution, and we're making sure we're good in terms of ease of use and task success. But it doesn't really like point you in the right direction. If you're kind of in that early concept validation stage, mm. it doesn't tell you if you've selected the right solution. Right. And that's why I like wanted to kind of. Uh, show value with user research immediately in a way that's very inch uh, friendly and clear and not too abstract, you know, 
very yep. practical. And it's very much in support of like a rapid iterative software development process that was already in flight. But then from there, build that credibility, build out these sort of wins and case studies that I could socialize around the org to build some momentum, get more budget, hire more researchers, and slowly move upstream and get towards that generative research. Yeah, no, I think that's great. It's a wonderful tool for doing that kind of stuff, especially if you have kind of in your mind that like, where is my company on the maturity scale for your Mm-hmm. For design and yep. experience, right? And if you if you acknowledge like, okay, we're not that far yet, right? Uh, like, you know, you're the you're the what the second person there that's really thinking about this now. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. uh, we you got some ground to cover. So if you go out and do like a huge user discovery project and come back with you know lots of visualizations of user mental models and journey maps and things like mm-hmm. that, I, I, so many organizations are not ready to take that in. You know, that's right. They'll look at this and go like, wow, yeah, that's impressive. That was a lot of work. Yeah. What, what do we do? You know? So, um, so building up credibility with, with simple things like validating the work that's going out. Right. And mm-hmm. don't, like, just, just give it a check. I love the way you, you put that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, that's a good way to get a team to get its, get its legs, so to speak. Totally. So that's great. So you started with that. You got some user research going, but how, did you make those steps up and and how did you grow the team and like, what was the scale of how that went? Yeah. Like you mentioned, like so much of my time was just uh, spent hiring because uh, I joined right as we were like beginning hyper growth. So that was a big important part of this journey too, is just the nature of entering a company just as they were entering hyper growth. I was lucky enough to have uh, co-founded and led my own venture back startup prior to joining duo. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, Doug had been an advisor to me as a founder um, so part of what was helpful for me coming in as a leader was I was aware of the nature of VC, what it means in terms of what we're, we're striving for in terms of exits, why growth is so important. And I remember sitting at my first duo all hands and kind of doing like a metrics review, like here's how the company's performing. And this was early, this was, uh, 2015. And I almost did a spit take, like when they showed sort of like, here's our churn, here's our NPS, here's how revenue is tracking. Like, here's how we're growing in general. I was like looking around the room dumbfounded. I was like, do you all realize this is incredible? Like this mm-hmm. is such an extraordinary opportunity. This is so rare. This almost never happens. So it, it was funny enough, like part of my role at Duo was helping people understand the broader context of like, this is so rare. What we're doing is hard, but it's so exciting. And this might be the story of your career. You know, yeah. we had people who, this was their first job out of undergrad. And I'm like, this is this might be just the the story of your career, and that's crazy because you, you're 22. You may never see this again. Right? <laughs> you may never see this again. I've been in it for 20 years. I've never gotten to do this before, so I was thrilled. But yeah, immediately I was like, okay, I'm rolling up my sleeves. I'm building out a ta- talent pipeline, building out career paths. Uh, you know, we worked like basically the the heads of product dev. We built out what we call the leadership factory. Like we mm. we just need to be cranking out successive cohorts of leaders. Every year, it's like this senior IC is interested in management. Let's groom them. You know, year after that, a couple years after that, they might be a director. So we need to get ahead of hyper growth so that we're building out talent appropriately so that we're poised to take advantage of this market opportunity. Because if we fail to do that as leaders, we would have squandered like a big market opportunity. Interesting. That's a perspective of more like we need to build a foundation rather than let's just keep putting up fires and like go find me some more VPs or something like that. That's Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And that's pretty unique to Duo, I think. Like, what I never heard at Duo was that, you know, we're like 
I'll put it a different way. Like we, we always want to retain people long-term. Like that is part of our strategy for success is like long-term retention, developing people from the earliest phase of their career, even from intern that we consider that a real success. If we can just like help enable the success of someone's career and keep them for years. And we, we really do see that. So that's, that's pretty neat. The idea is not burn people out and flip people. Like that's not our approach. You know, I was going to say, it seems a little different than the typical Silicon Valley culture. Uh, and yeah. then it occurred to me like, well, that's because you're in Ann Arbor, Michigan as well. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's another part of the story is like finding talent, like in your recruiting, mm-hmm. probably frequently r- required uh, relocation. And so it's kind of a big deal for a lot of people, I would imagine. Yeah, there was a there was a phenomenon that Doug called Michigan, which is like someone who maybe years ago graduated from University of Michigan, went out to Silicon Valley, had a tech career, maybe was starting a family, maybe things were getting kind of expensive and they were ready to kind of come back to Michigan again. Huh, so yeah. we had some su- success with that effect too. Interesting. And was it, it just in terms of like, I don't know, one of the things that I found in San Francisco for for so long was that it was easy to have a peer group outside of my company as well. Of people, I could talk to a bunch of people who were doing literally the same kind of web product design as I was yeah. doing. I could, for for better or worse, I'd go and get a burrito and like three people mm-hmm. next to me are talking about their term sheets. You know, it's just, I can't get away from it. Oh my God. Yeah. But at the same time, it felt like there was a community there and there were always events and there was you know, parties and all kinds of designers. And it felt like we could really share with you and that kind of stuff. Did you get that kind of sense in the Midwest? It is a different scene. I mean, surprisingly, like Ann Arbor does have a pretty vibrant startup community. And there is, it is a bit of a security space. There's a lot of security expertise there. Um, so that's pretty exciting, but it's a strength and a weakness, I suppose. Um, on the plus side, like there's not that kind of like, you know, you hear this, average of maybe a designer stays at a tech company for an average of 11 months. Have you heard that? That's, that's an <laughs> anecdote. I don't know me. where. Th- uh, yeah. No, it doesn't surprise me at all. They're just such in such high demand out there right yeah. now. Yeah. And I'm like, at least hit your one year cliff. Right? I know, just right? stay one more <laughs> month. Um, but we didn't have that kind of turnover. And uh, so that's advantageous. But yeah, there's not the same like, oh, I'm sitting on Caltrain looking over someone's shoulder and I'm like, oh, Google's developing this new product. That's interesting. Right. Yeah. it's. But Ann Arbor is like this crazy brainy community it's it's so influenced by the academic community of university of michigan we certainly hire a lot out of university of michigan so um there's no shortage of brains it's just yeah and and there's like the midwest work ethic too where people are just like i'm just stoked to do big important work and work on wicked problems and like yeah there's not as much of the like foosball culture although I could play a mean game of foosball <laughs> from my early days. <laughs> yeah, but it's one of the things that, uh, you know, we've talked to some of our startups about that, that this idea of like, yeah, it's all fun and games and everything, but it also instantly sort of brings in a competitive nature into your company, right? Like, mm-hmm. so I don't know, uh, for better or worse, some of those cultural artifacts that so many of the startups have, I'm not sure. But yeah, no, that's um, that's really interesting. When I, when I first started at True, one of the things we were talking about um, – uh, pretty seriously, is this idea that talent is pretty equally distributed around the globe, but opportunity is not. Mm-hmm. And how do? We, and, and that's a that's a. I think there is a. We have the ability to change that. 
So uh, one of yes. the, one, you know, in our own portfolio, we're big investors in Automatic, which makes WordPress. And mm-hmm. I, they are, I don't even remember, somewhere four or five, 600 people now. I, I, they're growing also very, very quickly. And yeah. no office at all. They are, yeah, that's they right. are around the globe. They're in so many different time zones. And all of these people stay coordinated. The CEO, Matt Mullenweg, kind of lives that way. He's living in different countries at different times of the year and, and things yeah. like that. And they have not just made it work, but have made it a, w- a way that they can thrive. So yeah. we, you know, in, in our own experience, uh, in our last fund, half of the investments were outside of the Bay Area. We've got. Is that right? Yeah, we have a bunch of investments in New York City, which is not super surprising, but that's a mm-hmm. growing, like, uh, a very sort of vibrant scene over there for, for tech investment and in, in startups. But then, yeah, we've got um, Montana, Michigan, again, from you yeah. here. O- over here, we've got f- five companies now, six companies in the UK. We've got, you know, up in Finland and. Portugal and things like that, Switzerland. Great. So yeah, really kind of trying to make an effort to say like, and it takes more work. And I think it's a harder job when you have companies mm-hmm. all spread out. But um, but I do think that those benefits that we were talking about, that I was talking about, about living in the Bay Area and having a peer group and, and those connections, God, there's so many things that are outweighing that now, you know, not just yeah. the cost of living, but but it does sometimes just feel like a factory town and you can't get away from it. Right. And there's no outside imp, you know, like I didn't have any friends that were architects or musicians or, you know, like yes. where do you get the uh, yeah. other influence? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that about, about true. It's, it's the right thing to do. I'm, I imagine it's also a competitive advantage for you now. You're not kind of like jumping on the same deal flow that the folks who strictly stay in the Valley I think so, yeah. are yeah. competing for. So it's the right thing to do. It's probably a better economic outcome too. Well, there's dividends to it too, because so much of the investing that we do is based on introductions that we get from the founders we have already invested in. Mm-hmm. That they say, "Hey, I know somebody; they're really good. They're in Kentucky. Is that okay?" Like, yes, yeah. you know, so great, um, that kind of stuff. So good. So I had some a couple questions about. We talked about your your team growing mm-hmm. and and how you were doing that kind of stuff and integrating it. How about you at the leadership level? Like, what? Oh, was, yeah. Right. I am always interested in the advocacy for the discipline. The advocacy for change, uh, the, the desire to get to have influence over prioritization at the business level and not just the product level. So right. stuff like that. I mean, Duo has just been such a like amazing opportunity. In four and a half years, I've had the opportunity to build product design from scratch, build out user research from scratch, lead the company through hypergrowth, and now help lead the company through acquisition. So just like that arc has been extraordinary and just the the amount of growth I have personally experienced as a leader has been a huge challenge and a great growing opportunity for me. It's been, it's been amazing. And just being able to take design from that level of, like we said, like pure execution all the way up now to strategy, like getting us up that maturity model where we're working with our product managers from the earliest stages of a new initiative to try to help shape the problem space, help frame the thinking, make sure we understand the customers in a really crisp way so that we're pointed in the right direction before we even get into execution. And part of my tactic there, you know, this is this is working for Duo. It might be different for different orgs, but anytime I'm trying to do something that's wildly different from the way that the org already operates, instead of coming in really heavy-handed with a mandate and saying, hey, listen, this is the way we're going to do it from now on because I said so, I've had so much more success just starting with, like, a much more experimental approach, which is, like, you know, it's appropriate given the nature of our our field. We're very like 
rapid iterative experiments. So in the same way, when you're trying to redesign the way the org operates, start with a tiny experiment, find some success, find collaborators who will be your future champions, and then create little case studies. Like, hey, here's here's what we did. We did this little ethnography pilot. Bring those findings back to the org, generate enthusiasm, and kind of scale up from there based on real wins that are smaller and experimental. Like that's been my approach and just kind of layering those over and over through the years. I found that was much more successful to get to that place where the way that we operate is influencing the org. So at at this point, it's, it's amazing because we're, we've gotten to the place where we're doing more like service design and we've, Hmm. we're rolling out design thinking in a much more like programmatized way now at Duo. Like we've used design thinking for years, but now we're talking about it in a more deliberate way where we're saying, this is the methodology, this is the framework, let's run people through the training from all over the org. And now we run, you know, design-led workshops for site reliability engineering, or running retrospectives on deploying to a massive customer and seeing, you know, getting sales in the room, getting customer success in the room, doing essentially a design-led workshop to say, what were the gaps? What are the opportunities? How can we streamline this process to do better in the future? So really like turning design inward to start designing the way the business runs. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Um, what was it like, though, for you sort of personally when you sort of got into the position? I know, like for me, one of the first times uh, that I really felt like, oh, I've kind of leveled up here was when I was at Google. And um, yeah. and I remember like I'm now I'm reporting to somebody who reports to the CEO. Like I'm just, I'm, yeah. wow, I'm, I'm one step away. Holy crap. And like mm-hmm. I'm going to his staff meeting. And it's, you know, it's Monday morning and we get in there and I'm like, holy crap. I just like, what am I doing here? You know, Uh Uh, not to mention (laughs) the fact that they all were like, are you a designer? What are you doing here? You know, like, because it was Google in 2006, right? So um, it was a, it was a uh, hostile environment for sure when it came to the kind of stuff that I was trying to practice, but I've talked about that before. Um, the, uh, just a sense of like, all right, I gotta like, I, I gotta own this space, but I gotta stay true to what we're trying to do here, right? I don't know. What was your experience like with that? Progressive waves of like terror, and then like, <laughs> no, I got this. Like, I yeah. absolutely belong here, and like, I would be failing my team if I stepped back out of fear, mm. you know. So there were a lot of moments where I was kind of like privately going off into a private space, hyping myself up, and then like kind of coming out and giving a talk in front of the company and, and just trying to like own it. But anytime I had to do that, like it built my confidence, you know, I was like, that went well, <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't yeah. terrible. I feel okay. But I got to see how meaningful it was for the early career employees who report through me. And that's like really been my fuel all along. Like I can even like find their face in the crowd and be like, okay, there you are. Like I'm yeah. doing this for you. It, almost regardless of what I say right now, just the fact that you're seeing me up here, I'm a designer, I'm a lady, like I belong up here, I'm owning the room. Like that moment is about them and showing them like, this is your future. Mm. Like I want to see you up here in a few years. That's And th- those are the conversations I have with them too. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that a lot. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So you've gone through a big transition in the last, what's it been, a year or so uh, since the yeah. company was acquired? Yep, coming up on a year. Yeah. How'd you take your <laughs> team crazy. to that? Like, I remember like being yeah. involved in a couple acquisitions, the, the mix of elation and fear that I saw from every one of our employees 
Just right. like, oh my God, that's great. This is our dream. Holy crap, what does that mean? I'm like, yeah, yeah. you got a new, uh, <laughs> your your email address is, is adobe.com now. Uh, we got, mm-hmm. There's all kinds of stuff. Are we leaving the office? I'm like, yeah, probably. We got to go. Yeah, you know. So there's a lot that goes into yes. that. I'm wondering how that, what that was like for you guys. I'm laughing because it, there was the fear and the elation and there's so many different facets to this. One part of my role as a leader, again, having the background, having come from having led a VC backed startup, I had some context and I was like, I had done a talk at duo called story of a startup. It's up on Vimeo. If anybody's interested where I just talked about my personal story of co-founding, running my own startup prior to duo, pitching investors, getting VC and what that means and kind of explaining what's the implicit pact that you're going into when you take VC. There's two possible exits, right? You're looking for either an IPO or acquisition generally to get the investors their returns it's not always clear to employees that that's the nature of the business. Yeah, right. So to be surprised and scared by an acquisition, on the one hand, as a leader, I don't want to appear tone deaf because I'm like, this is awesome. We did it. You yeah, know, I'm yeah. like, I was like over the moon. I was so proud. Cisco has been an extraordinary place to land. I was really proud of just the outcome for Michigan and what's that that's going to mean for Southeast Michigan's economy. Um, you know, Ann Arbor's 45 minutes from Detroit. So that's, that's really meaningful for the community there. Mm. So I was over the moon, but I had to kind of tamp that down and say, look, there's people here who are terrified and like, this is not what they wanted. There's other people who are really proud and enthusiastic, but I need to kind of read the room here and pause my own enthusiasm and make sure I'm explaining to them what this means for us. We also had employees who had gone through acquisitions before that were ugly at different companies, like what I would call like a squelch acquisition where the nature of the acquisition is to just like squelch the competition, like shut it down. Um, Aqua hires, you know, where you kind of get dismantled for parts. And I had to explain to the team, that's not what this is. Like this is a strategic acquisition where we help get to shape Cisco's future and help show them like, what does the future of security mean and bring our human centered approach to security to Cisco. They saw all of that from the outside. And the idea was not to dismantle us. It was keep us intact and, set us up for success so that we can influence Cisco at large. And like, what an extraordinary opportunity that was. And, yeah. you know, not just as a business, but for each of us, for our careers, like to get to continue the story to say, we were a tiny little baby startup a few years ago. We just did hyper growth. Now we're at Cisco. Like you can hang on at Cisco and be an executive, you know, at some point in your future, if you're like a mid-level designer now. Sure. So a lot of my role was just kind of trying to help explain not all acquisitions are the same. This is the best possible scenario. Cisco is actually a great place to land and like give it time, like hang out for a while and give it time. Cause Cisco is also really clever about how they handle acquisitions where they try to like minimize disruption and, and make it not feel chaotic. And like, there's a lot of change coming suddenly. That's not always the case. I mean, various companies, some companies are also very good at acquisition by immediately absorbing, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, the next day at work, all the signs are down and all the signs are replaced and everything has changed. Yeah. And like we, and that's the way we operate, but you got to know that going in, right? Where, yeah. where, where are we landing and how are we going to do it? I think uh, it was interesting when we were acquired by Adobe, when Typekit was acquired by Adobe and that there were sort of, there were the people, the small group of people who acquired the company inside of Adobe. And then there was corporate Adobe, right? And they had different, okay, yeah. right? And it was different, right? Mm-hmm. They were like, come in here yep. and stay the way you are and change stuff for us. And then yeah. corporate Adobe was like, all right, here you are. We're going to replace all your tools and everything you do is now <laughs> the way we do it. And yeah. so we had this like, anyway, it was um, disorienting for a while for us to try to figure totally. out how do we land and how do we fit in here 
And what should we really hold on to? You know, mm-hmm. like what, what mm-hmm. you know, what is the core of what they are buying essentially? And, yeah. and can we infuse that in the rest of the organization? Yeah, absolutely. I think another thing there is like the nature of startups, startups equal change. I think I got that from Mia Bloom. Um, she's been mm. a, a coach to me for, for years. Great. And yeah, startup equals change. It's kind of part of the implied thing that we're here to do. And I think it's helpful to also know your team and to understand who are the folks here who naturally are averse to change and who are the people here who find that thrilling like it's an adventure right um and there's probably you know a lot in between it's not just like this huge dichotomy but really keying in on knowing your people and understanding that some people any amount of change automatically feels stressful and threatening for Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. and you really need to be high touch with them and help to explain like look i know this feels chaotic right now this is a lot of change but let me explain to you why this could potentially be a good thing and just the fact that you're being high touch and aware of the way that they're experiencing it. I think it's incredibly important through hypergrowth and through acquisition to be a leader who's not tone deaf in that way, you yeah. know, because it is tempting just to be like, whoa, and like, you know, pop the champagne or whatever. But if you scan the room and you see that half the people are kind of shut down and, and scared, you need to go walk around and talk to people and check in, make sure they're doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can kind of say that for almost anything that, that a team goes through, I think. Yeah. We've talked yeah. a lot about the sort of managing design teams and product teams here on the podcast in the past. And mm-hmm. it is really about the, the, like tuning into the diversity of the needs and the opportunities that each person is wanting to pursue and, and things yeah. like that. Um, and it's a lot to keep track of, but, uh, mm-hmm. but it's the only way through. So, well, that sounds great. Uh, we're kind of running out of time here. Uh, I appreciate yeah. you sharing all of the, the sort of stuff that you've been through and, and some really interesting techniques to, to just to kind of like grow the, uh, grow influence is really what we want to yeah. do with design and big organizations. So I hope you can have that same influence in Cisco now that you guys are there. I think so. I think so. And I just hope that, you know, the designers listening come away feeling a little bit more interested and curious about the security space. Cause honestly, like we need designers. It's a really interesting space. I think we open with that. And, um, for folks who are skeptical, like to me, it's exciting cause it feels kind of like being in a spy movie, but you're like, I'm going to use my design skills to like solve this geopolitical problem. You know, the stakes are high. Let's, let's bust this out real quick. Like, That's True. It's, you know? it, it really is an arms race, security in a nutshell, right? Like, um, yeah. yeah. So it sounds like a huge opportunity. It's a huge opportunity. It's really fun. We're always hiring. So <laughs> all right, <laughs> come all join right. the fun. Uh, let's see where we can, where can we find you on the, uh, on that internet to find out more about what you're thinking? Oh, we got uh fix F I X P E R T at Twitter. That's right. So That's right. Uh, go over there and follow Sally and you can find out what's going on in security. And design. Yeah. That's great. Sally, thanks so much for being on the program. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Jeff. This is tons of fun. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen, and this was Presentable. Presentable.